From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell. One day after GOP Congressman Drew Ferguson's surprise announcement that he won't seek re-election, we'll talk to his predecessor in Georgia's 3rd Congressional District. I'm Greg Bluestein. Former Congressman Lynn Westberlin joins us with his take on what to expect in Ferguson's district and why so many Republican incumbents are planning to retire next year. I'm Patricia Murphy. Vice President Kamala Harris is scheduled to attend the Celebration Bowl in Atlanta on Saturday, just as polls suggest the Biden-Harris ticket could be losing steam with black male voters. Voting rights advocate Chris Bruce gives us his take on whether black men could abandon the Democratic Party in 2024. I'm Bill Nygut. We now have the required letters of apology from two election conspiracy defendants who cut plea deals. They won't exactly bring tears to your eyes. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. It's been so great being in studio with you all this week. <laughs> Tia, you bring such wonderful energy into the room when you come in. <laughs> and you got to be here for a lot of meetings. Yes. A lot, a lot of AJC <laughs> meetings and a holiday party yesterday. We got to see the holiday party was fun. And it was cool to be able to see like our AJC bosses, Leroy, Andrew, and colleagues multiple times this week. So it's been a great week. And we are going to finish strong with a jam-packed show today. Today. So <laughs> let's start off with these apology letters. Three co defendants in the Fulton County election interference case. These are former President Donald Trump's former co um, defendants. So two of them had three, all of them are writing apology letters as they reach these plea deals. But two of the apology letters were one-liners written on notebook paper. Greg, you and Tamar Hallerman broke the story. What what did they say in the letters and what was your reaction when you saw them? Yeah, a little a little context, a little backstory here. So um there's four co-defendants of Donald Trump who have pleaded guilty to lesser charges, and one of the stipulations is they have to write an apology letter. And so we heard Jenna Ellis, the former Trump attorney, give a tearful very emotional apology in front of the full court. But we hadn't seen the other three co-defendants' letters yet. We'd heard about them. We'd, we'd heard d- descriptions of them, but we hadn't seen them yet for some quirk. We're not really sure why. The clerk just didn't post it. It should be public record. So long story short, we ended up getting those letters right as the holiday party right. was starting. <laughs> right. Party like a journalist. We hold up in a, in a booth as we wrote it up um, in the middle of the a raging party at a brewery in Sandy Springs. And Tia, as you mentioned... I mean, Sidney Powell's was, I think, 13 words. Kenneth Chesbrough was maybe 23 or 24 words. Um, They were um, not exactly remorseful. They were not exactly (laughs) full of uh, mea culpas. They were, uh, they they reminded me of what my third grader or my fourth grader (laughs) would write when she's ticked off at me. So I'll, I'll read Sidney Powell's since it's the shorter one. She says, I apologize for my actions in connection with the events in Coffee County. Bill, what did you make of that? I. Well, it didn't bring tears to my eyes. Uh, yeah. I, you know, Jenna Ellis, um, she was so emotional when she made her statement in court when she, uh, when her plea deal was announced that I actually almost felt sorry for, I'm sorry for her in the sense that I really believed to an extent that she felt like she had been somehow sucked into something that she later regretted enormously. 
Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro, not so much. So Patricia, what do you why do you think that Bonnie Willis decided to accept these? You know, like it doesn't show a lot of you know remorse. No remorse, really. It's it's almost like they're checking a box. So why are these letters acceptable? Well, I don't know that she's allowed to make edits to them or send them back for further refinement. Um, And I think that accepting these letters and then now seeing them published shows you just how sorry Chesbrough and Sidney Powell are, which does not seem to be very sorry, you know, and they're only sorry about the pieces for which they have been convicted or rather pled guilty to, particularly for Sidney Powell's really narrowly tailored i'm i'm sorry about my connection to coffee county not sorry for coming to atlanta and holding a rally claiming the election was stolen up in alpharetta in that rodeo hall greg where where she did that huge rally um not sorry for advancing all of these lies about the election in georgia and all around the country just very sorry for what she got caught doing honestly now there were other there was a third apology letter um from Scott Hall, the bail bondsman, and he really does seem sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, I owe the people of Georgia an apology and kind of went into all the great detail about how he had no idea what he was getting wrapped up in. And even when he was doing it, he didn't understand that it could be illegal. So I think that that really felt like it rang true. Yes, I actually am sorry. And here's how it happened. Um, but the other two, just sorry, not sorry. And I will say we got a note where Greg and I got a text from a member who compared it to one of her children's past apology letters to a brother. And it said, I'm so sorry. And yet at the same time, I'm not sorry at all. (laughs) I was especially taken by Kenneth Chesborough's lawyerly apology. Here's the quote. I apologize to the citizens of the state of Georgia and of Fulton County for my involvement in count 15 of the indictment. (laughs) So, and that's what, Greg, I feel like some of this is because Chesborough and Powell are attorneys, whereas Scott Hall is a bail bondsman. Do you think they kind of lawyered themselves up, so to speak, in these apology letters? They might have, but also it might be because they don't feel remorse. And we don't know how they actually feel, but we do know that there's been an intense, a wave of criticism and sarcastic responses to this. I mean, we, we collected some in the morning newsletter, the PGAM, your jolt of daily news uh, in Georgia. Um, but, uh, but there's been such criticism. And, and one of the critiques is basically goes like this. You know, they agreed to lesser charges in order to keep their law licenses. And, you know, the least they could do is, is, is apologize, give a genuine apology for, uh, for promoting these election fraud lies that really sought to undermine President Joe Biden's victory. And they didn't do that. It was just a handwritten, you know, quick dispatch to say, okay, I met, I checked this box. Well, we're going to always, of course, keep an eye on that case. <clears throat> and, of course, keeping an eye on the coverage, Greg, Tamar, Bill Rankin. But we're going to transition to my turf a little bit, which is Georgia's congressional delegation, Drew Ferguson has joined what's increasingly looking like a Mac, a mass exodus of incumbents from Congress. We should note both parties are seeing members announce they aren't running for re-election. And even former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, his last day in Congress period was yesterday. He said his goodbye. He decided not even to come back to finish the remainder of his term. Now, there were specific issues that seemed to have led Ferguson to decide to retire from the House, but there's also an apparent discontent um, that others, particularly um, on the Republican side, seem to have about Congress these days. To help give us insight on all of this, we're happy to welcome former 3rd District Georgia Congressman, fellow Georgia Republican Lynn Westmoreland. Good morning. Good morning. I hope y'all are well. We are. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Can you start? What was your did you have any heads up? Did you do you talk to Representative Ferguson much? Did you give him any counsel on this? What was your reaction when you found out he was not going to run for another term? Not surprised. Um, I had talked to him previously. And then he called me the day before the announcement came out to give me a heads up. And 
you know, I, I appreciate what he had to say. Uh, he got, I think he got remarried last year, very happily uh, remarried. Uh, I think he bought a farm. I know he bought a farm down in Meriwether County. And so, you know, he had been practicing dentistry, um, you know, all his life before he went to Congress. And it was just a disappointment because you go up there thinking that, you know, you're going to help the country. And then you've got just a handful of yo-yos up there that don't want to see anything done that's not done the way they think it should be done. And it's just real disappointing. And then I think that whips race uh, took a lot out of him. Uh, y'all were talking about how elections maybe uh, were phony or whatever. But in his case, I think he really did get uh, kind of bent over in that race. And he only lost by one vote. Uh, I, and so it w- I think that disappointed him because of all the work he had put into that whips race. And he's like me. I mean, he... I mean, I, he has said over and over, he just enjoyed helping people in the third district, but that uh, for his own sanity and the good of uh, his, you know, new marriage and what he, where he wanted to go with his next chapter of his life now that, uh, and the mess that Congress is in. I mean, if you look at it, you know, you had the five or six yo-yos up there that were, uh, kind of controlling the rest of the members and you know McCarthy's leaving uh, they got rid of Santos uh, Bill Johnson in Ohio is taking the presidency of the uh, of some small college up mm-hmm. in Ohio so mm-hmm. now you're going to be down to one yo-yo going to be able to you know stop the stove so and uh- I want to double down because you're using the term yo-yo, which we find quite interesting. But who, not necessarily calling names, even though you're welcome to, but who are these yo-yos you're talking about? <laughs> There's so many yo-yos up there. <laughs> I don't know that I can narrow it down to five or six or seven. But what but, do you mean by yo-yos? Yeah. Like, well, tell us, what, what's the these, definition? Well, the definition of a yo-yo is somebody that does not want to, uh, they're up and down. I mean, they negotiate a deal and then decide that that deal's not, uh, good enough. And that they want to add another sweetener to the deal. And I think that's what happened with the guys that, uh, you know, blocked McCarthy's, uh, um, way to the speaker. I mean, they just kept going back to the well. It, Kevin would agree to some of their demands. And then when they were going to the floor, they decided they needed something else. And Kevin made a big mistake. I mean, he gave away the farm to a group of individuals that came back and stabbed him in the back. And, you know, I those are the guys that Look, I served up there. I, wa- I was one of those guys. and uh, But eventually, you have to learn that there's not a perfect bill up there, and you got to weigh what good you're getting against what's bad in the bill. And I don't think they ever saw it that way. They saw it that everything was going to have to be perfection. Jumping and, in. hey, yeah. everybody wants that, but, you know, you're not going to get it. Congressman, it's Patricia Murphy. So uh, along with the yo-yos, the yo-yos weren't just gumming up the works and ousting the speaker without a replacement plan in place. Um, I remember very clearly when Congressman Ferguson also started to get death threats because he um, had spoken out against Jim Jordan because other members were getting death threats. It, It feels from the outside looking in that the environment up there has gotten much, much more toxic than it was even in your day, which was no, you know, no picnic. Yeah. You know, uh, even when I was in Congress, you know, somebody put on the internet, uh, a bounty, uh, for me was $75,000, which was really disappointing. 
uh, I thought I would be a, worth a lot more than 75 <laughs> grand. But, uh, it was me and uh, some uh, a, a lady from uh, Florida and one other person. And so, <clears throat> you know, it, it goes on. And th- these death threats, you know, you've got people out there that uh, don't really understand the process up there and all the politics involved in it. And sometimes they do get very emotional and, you know, send you a death threat. Um, you know, I mean, people will send a death threat or call your office over one vote out of thousands. And so I don't, I don't, I mean, yeah, I, that may have played a part in it, but I think all members get them all year. So hey, I don't, I don't. I'm sorry, uh, Lynn, it's Bill Nygut. I didn't mean to cut you off. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm man? fine. It's been a while. Good to talk to you. Yeah. I have a quick question. I have a really basic okay. question for you because the way you've talked about the, the members up there right now, I'm curious about something. Greg Bluestein has been uh, keeping track now. He's accumulating the many people who want to run for that third district seat uh, <laughs> now that Ferguson's retired. Uh, retiring. There's only about so, 30 of them. Yeah. So here's my question. <laughs> yeah. Would you recommend to anyone who came to you and said, I want to run for the U.S. House of Representatives, would you tell them it was a good idea to do that? Or are things so toxic? Is Are things so locked up right now that no issues ever get resolved? Would you suggest that perhaps they ought to run for, say, city council instead? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Bill, the truth of it is I've had several phone calls over the last couple of days and you know, I've, I, it just depends on where they're at in life. I mean, if they're, you know, if they're wealthy and, uh, you know, don't have small children, uh, um, that, that want to go serve their country and the constituents, then, yeah, that's good. But, but are they going to get anything accomplished up there, Lynn? No, no. <laughs> and that, and that, no, they're not. And look, Bill, I go back, you know, I go back to when I left to go to Congress. And, you know, at the time I was the uh, minority leader in the House. And, you know, I think we did a good job of recruiting some candidates and then, you know, we sued over the maps and won that lawsuit. So the maps were turned in our favor. And, and of course at the time, and you know, this governor Purdue and I didn't exactly see eye to eye (laughs) on a lot of things. And so, you know, I made my decision to run for Congress because it's not very often that a seat comes up. I wanted to do something on the national level, but now as I look back, I think I could have done a lot more uh, if I had stayed here and become speaker and just fought the small battles that I would have had with Governor uh, Purdue. Because up there, you're one of 435. And, you know, trying to get 218 people to agree with you on anything is is really hard and that's the reason they make these bills so big and so complicated because there's good and bad in all of them congressman and, um yes ma'am we have we have to wrap up uh, fairly soon um but it's blue steam okay. and you told me yesterday that it's got to be absolutely misery to serve in congress now yet as bill mentioned there there might be 20 30 candidates get in so before we take a break what, what are your predictions for what we could see in the third district in the next few months? How, 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 how wild will this race be? Well, I think you, you know, you're going to have, uh, well, Matt Brass, okay. State Senator, real astute politician has done a great job. Uh, and I feel like I trained him some, but you know, he's chairman of rules. Uh, and, you know, he might want to run for lieutenant governor or, you know, he runs for Congress. So that's a big decision. Which path does he want to take? You know, you've got uh, people like uh, somebody mentioned Philip Singleton. Uh, 
who lives in Virginia. So that's going to be some type of trick. And, and so, you know, I've heard, uh, the former sheriff, Mike Yeager, uh, who was, uh, also a U.S. Marshal over the Northern district. And so there's going to be just a, a lot of different people from, you know, I don't want to say classes, but you, you're just going to have some, you know, different people. And I do think that there'll probably be eight or 10 that come out of the gate. And then I think the more they look at it and, and, and listen, I think it'll probably be narrowed down to four or five. I mean, uh, before it's over with. And I don't know what kind of counsel it's going to depend on who calls me and who asks me specific questions, but you know, it ain't me. So <laughs> I don't know. So we can rule you out. <laughs> we yeah. thought you were going to break some news today. No, 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 no. no. Well, that would be breaking news. I promise you that. I, I need a I need a good divorce lawyer if I said that. But well, we uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning, former Congressman Lynn Westmoreland. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you, and y'all have a merry Christmas. You too, sir. All right, Bye-bye. and thank you from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. This is Politically Georgia. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com newsletters. Now, a little after the show yesterday, I broke the story that Vice President Kamala Harris will be making a trip to Atlanta tomorrow. She's going to be attending the Celebration Bowl, which is the de facto HBCU National Championship football game. We should note that Harris is coming to cheer on her alma mater, the Howard University Bison. And they'll be facing my beloved Florida Agriculture and Mechanical (laughs) University Rattlers. And I'll also note that Howard is the underdog. Mm. So we'll see what happens on the gridiron. But let's talk about the political football that Vice President Harris is juggling. Um, There's recent polling from Politico, published the polling from Gen Forward. That said almost 20% of black voters in this poll said they would prefer an alternative to both President Biden and former President Donald Trump. So to talk more about the black vote in Georgia, we have Chris Bruce. He's a former staffer for Stacey Abrams and her campaigns, and he currently serves as policy director for the ACLU of Georgia. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning, Tia. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, <laughs> is this trip a Hail Mary for the Biden-Harris campaign? Tell us, um, in addition to cheering on Howard, this is also a huge gathering of HBCU graduates, black people in general. She's going to be speaking to a key demographic. Oh, absolutely. And I can 100% say that Georgia welcomes Vice President Harris here uh, for the Celebration Bowl. I don't know about you, Georgia State grad, UGA uh, grad as well, go dogs, but I'm actually going for Howard. And Ooh. within oh. that, Ooh. I know, within yes. that. Tomato, tomato. But in, and it goes <laughs> along with uh, a lot of other things. Where else would you want to galvanize black people than the Celebration Bowl? The first uh, bowl game of the season. Um, and with the vice president there talking to these historic uh, HBCUs, FAMU is amazing, has made f- 
phenomenal graduates. So has Howard University. And again, you're in Atlanta, so you're with the AUC with Morehouse, Spellman, Clark Atlanta. It is like the best mix you can ever have. So if anyone needs to be there, it is Vice President Kamala Harris. So, Patricia, we're talking about this polling, and we know that there's always conversation about the black vote and how dependent Democrats are, but also whether former President Trump can peel off some of that support um, from black voters, um, particularly black male. And that's something the AJC, you've written about it. I think the AJC's written about it. What are your thoughts? And then I'll bring in Chris. Well, yeah. So, Chris, we have seen polling the last couple of election cycles, you know, maybe six months out. We see softness for the Democratic candidates, um, even Stacey Abrams, certainly Joe Biden, um, a few months out from their election, showing that maybe they're even down in the down in 80 percent with black voters in Georgia. But then once Election Day comes around, that typically consolidates pretty consistently back up to 89 or 90 percent. Where do you think um, the black voters are in Georgia right now, knowing, of course, that that's not a monolithic group. And I do feel like young, progressive, diverse voters are really behaving differently than their older Democratic counterparts right now. Patricia, I'm glad you harpened on that point of black voters are not a monolithic group. Black voters are voters. They are Americans who want the same things that all Americans do. Now, here's the thing about the black population. It is impacted more severely than any other population that you have. So when it comes to criminal legal reform, we have a disproportionate amount of black men who are in jails. Uh, when it comes to health care, you have more black women dying from maternal mortality. You have all these things that are happening. What you do not have, though, and black people have always been dissatisfied by the system because we have never felt that we have always lived up to the American dream or the American promise. So that's what goes along with this frustration. However, when picking between parties, typically you see African-Americans go more Democrat, uh, Democratic when it does come between the two within it. So when it comes down to, again, this is a snapshot in time. We are less than one year away. I don't know. There's so many runoffs in Georgia. You could have a runoff <laughs> or anything else that happens. Y'all know that better than anyone else. But when it comes down to it, I believe that African-Americans are going to come back. They're going to vote. Uh, they may be dissatisfied right now, but they are going to vote. Because they know that if they do not vote, they will be in a worse position than they would be if they did vote. Okay, Chris, when you see these polls, though, right, and I know there's been a lot of coverage and there's also a lot of valid criticism of these polls. Last year in 2022, we had, uh, as Patricia mentioned, there was polls that showed a significant softness, among, especially among African-American men, towards Stacey Abrams that we didn't see with Raphael Warnock, even at the same time. Um, and as, as mentioned, all those numbers tightened as the election got drew near. Do you see the same dynamic playing out with Joe Biden next year? Because, you know, it's a very fragile coalition that he built to win Georgia by fewer than 12,000 votes that depended on African-American voters. You couldn't even come close if you didn't have, you know, overwhelming support from the black electorate here. So do you still see that narrowing, see some of those those um, those voters who are showing concerns right now kind of, Galva being galvanized closer to November of next year. And, you know, that's up to President Joe Biden and the Biden-Harris ticket. Uh, if they're able to communicate their message of what they've done for the black community, I believe that they will not only uh, make gains with the black community, they will far outreach for the path of the Democratic Party. Uh, however, what you saw in 2022 with Stacey Abrams against Brian Kemp, uh, Brian Kemp won more of the black vote by like two percentage points. But that lagged behind uh, the national average where other Trump uh, candidates were on the ballot. So what I'm specifically talking about, and I know this was a national poll with all 50 states in the District of Columbia. In Georgia, I believe that Georgians, all Georgians, especially black voters in Georgia, are very literate voters. So you, they are a persuasive block. And if you are not communicating with them, they will be turned off. But if you are communicating with them with a message that says there is hope for your community, then, yes, they will come out and vote and not go back and forth between uh, Democrat or Republican. We just haven't seen. And that. is the president and the vice president doing enough to communicate with the black voters here in Georgia? I'll be critical of them. I don't think so. Uh, the apparatus 
everything that they've had and built up. And I believe there are people here who are telling them, you need to come to Georgia and you need to come to Georgia now. Uh, the deputy campaign manager for uh, President Biden also worked for Senator Warnock. And, and is was, a Georgia native. And is a Georgia native. Right. So he Clinton knows Fultz. how to win Georgia. Mm-hmm. You, uh, Chris, actually, um, Politico earlier this week ran a piece saying that the Biden campaign was significantly behind in building infrastructure in battleground states, cited Georgia specifically. Theron Johnson was on the show, uh, uh, who's obviously a, a major uh, part of the Democratic uh, uh, apparatus here. Uh, Theron says, don't worry about it. Georgia's going to have an organization built out very soon. We don't know. I don't know if you have any information about that. But beyond that, let me ask you a different question. Why isn't the Biden message, whether it's to black voters, white voters, Asians, Hispanics, there are so many things Democrats say he can point to as accomplishments that make him uh, a very strong candidate for reelection. None of it seems to be getting through. What's going on there? I think it's more of the issues that go into this. And that pointing out, and I heard uh, Theron Johnson on here before, I think he did a great job in pointing out again, uh, Reagan was behind in the polls at this time. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton was behind in the polls at this time. President Barack Obama was behind in the polls literally around the same time. So it's still very early out. But going to your point, the Biden administration has a lot of accomplishments that they can tout. Uh, but when it comes down to you going to the grocery store and picking up eggs for your family, when it comes to uh, other things dealing with infrastructure, education, there are a lot of upset people there because they feel like they're being left behind. Well, but Well, that's not an argument for why you should vote for Biden for re-election. Right. And I, I would agree with you. Oh, OK. Uh, well, to, to the point of saying the communication has not been there of what we're seeing. And you can see inflation going down. Uh, so the policies that have been put in place by this administration. Like they're still dealing with things that have to deal with COVID and nobody wants to hear excuses anymore. They want to see action. And the actions are happening at the gas pump. They are happening at the grocery store. And I believe that when you come around into November of 2024, people will be in a better place. And when in a better place, you will have more favorability for the president. So I want to ask you specifically about the divide um, between black men and black women voters. And that's something the AJC, we wrote about it. Um, ahead of the Stacey Abrams campaign. You weren't always a fan of our AJC coverage. (laughs) Which is okay. And that's okay. And we had some robust conversation about it. And I don't want to relitigate that, but it does, not just in polling, but in actual turnout, black men are more likely to support a Republican than black women. Can you explain that dynamic and whether you think there's anything Democrats can do to bring some of those black male voters back in the fold. And again, we're talking about a relatively small number, but still more likely than black women. Well, first, I want to correct the record. I do enjoy listening and reading the AJC. I think all of you are amazing authors. Uh, Secondly, when it comes down to it, this is if you look at any type of campaign, the number one demographic for Democrats are black people. The number one subset of that, black women, number one for Democrats. Number two, black men. And we don't ever talk about the other races and other genders when it comes down to it. Black men have always had a conservative bent based off of, in this polling, business, based off of opportunities when it comes to resources. So there is a message within the Republican Party dealing with that. Uh, So black men are going to still vote Democratic. That's not going to change. When it comes down to it, though, uh, black men, are they going to be critical in this race? Absolutely. Uh, There are things that Democrats can see and say where you're not going to, let me put it this way. In Obama, you saw the largest numbers of black men voting for a presidential candidate. When you have somebody that looks like you, you are going to be more engaged in that community and speaking like that. Until Democrats really have that and looking at the apparatus of the Democratic Party, until you see that, you will, really won't see black men voting at those mm. same levels that you did with President Obama. So, Chris, Democrats who we talk to have a lot of angst about Joe Biden himself um, because he is um, 80 years old. 
kind of looks a little bit older than that sometimes. Um, he's not knocking the socks off in terms of engagement and excitement for Democratic voters. Do you think that Democrats should stick with Biden? Is he the right messenger and the right person to be putting up in 24 potentially against Trump? This is something that I really want to get the message out on. Uh, saying someone's age is ageism within it. And I know that's been a major thing that goes into there. Now, you can judge somebody based off of their competency. If you're saying that I don't believe that they have the mental capacity to do their duties and their jobs. That's fair. Saying that you're 80, 90. I know 40, 30, 20 year olds that don't know what they're doing compared to anything else. And let's not forget, Donald Trump is not that far away from President Biden's age either. So between the two, if we're talking about age, that's not it. We're talking about can you execute the agenda of the American people? Yeah, Chris, I think that's a really excellent point you're making. But I also think Patricia said something that is just as meaningful, which is he that, that President Biden does sometimes appear to be even older than his actual age. And you know what we're talking about. His He walks in a very more halting um, manner than he I mean, I remember covering him in his first presidential campaign in 87. He was a buoyant, high-energy guy. Um, that's not the Joe Biden today. He speaks more softly. He, I, don't, I don't think any of it has to do with mental capacity, but there are physical manifestations that give voters pause. See, but there's the problem within it. Like, coming after you and speaking after you, you're very, you're much better articulate uh, with words than I am. So it's, it's one of those type of things. Oh, absolutely, you are, Bill. <laughs> so it's one of those type of things. Now, you have a, your previous Democratic president was Obama. Like coming after Obama and people were expecting Joe Biden to be this amazing savior within it, it's not. And a lot of people do want that cool guy where you can have a beer with. We've heard that before. Or they would be cool to hang out with. Or do you want a president who's actually going to execute an agenda to keep Americans safe, make sure you have job growth and opportunity and education for your children? That's what people really should be looking at. Um, I can't make President Obama, uh, Biden cool. Did y'all see his cake, his birthday cake that he said that was like on flames uh, because there are so many candles on it? Like he's making fun of himself. But when it comes down to it, I think the major agenda items that happen, especially within the black community, is what he's going to be judged on in 2024. Chris, we've been hounding you about 2024, but I want to ask you about 2026. Okay. Uh, you're, you're very close with Stacey Abrams. Um, we had in this morning's Politically Georgia newsletter some uh, news about her alums, you know, Lauren Groorg and other aides of her starting their own consulting firm. But I wonder if you've talked to her about her future plans. What, if anything, she's told you about whether or not she might run for office again in 2026. Let me tell you, I believe that Stacey Abrams is one of the most competent, uh, phenomenally astute political um, consultants that we do have out here. Um, so Stacy can do whatever she wants to do. Uh, if she feels like she wants to run again, go be in. And I know that there's going to be plenty of people who are going to be behind her. That was a non-answer. I must. That was a, <laughs> that was an astute dodge. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna leave it there. Chris Bruce, policy director of ACLU of Georgia, Democratic strategist. Thank you for joining us this morning. Hey, thank you. Happy Friday. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. It's Friday, which means we can answer some of your questions from the listener mailbag. But there is a little twist today. Now, usually our executive producer, Shaney B, helps us out with the mailbag, but he is not with us today. 
So producer Natalie Mendenhall is going to come out of the shadows <laughs> and she is going to help us with your questions. Natalie, what do you have for us today? Well, first, Tia, let me introduce myself, to, you know, to the audience. I'm a cancer. I like long walks on the beach, movies. <laughs> Obviously, I love Georgia politics. But in all seriousness, I am stepping into the great shoes of Shaney B. I'm a very behind the scenes person. But we do have some great calls and we do have to do them justice. So... A reminder, if you don't give us a name, our EP Shaney B will assign one for you. So let's hear the first voicemail from the Tar Heel State. I was given the name Obadiah Palmer by Shaney B uh, from the great state of North Carolina. My question is for Tia. As a former staffer on Capitol Hill, I was always wondering from a reporter's perspective of how you got the best uh, information for your stories. Was it uh, standing out in the hallways trying to get a member's comment or another means of gathering that information? want to say to the entire team uh, there at the AJC, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Go Braves, Go Dogs. Go Dogs. Well, Obadiah, first of all, thank you for the holiday greetings. And um, so funny you ask because my dad just visited with me in D.C. and I took him up to the Capitol and Congress was in session and we were running around all over. And at one point he was with me in the hallways trying to catch lawmakers. And I said, see, you think you think my job is glamorous. This is what I actually do for a living is stand in the hallways and hope I can catch members of Georgia's delegation. So sometimes it just depends. Sometimes I'll reach out directly to their offices and say, hey, I want to talk to representative so-and-so. And they'll say, hey, Tia, stop by here or meet us here. Sometimes I'm literally grabbing them on the way to votes. Um, and sometimes, you know, the normal press release or social media now is a lot of source of information because they're kind of controlling their messaging. Marjorie Taylor Greene, you got to watch her social media to know what's going on with her. So it's kind of a combination to them all. And of course, we love to get tips. Yeah, and during the height of the pandemic, Tia, it seemed like there was almost a pooling process, too, yes. for, because they didn't want to overcrowd the Capitol uh, when there was social distancing in place. So you could also, you know, pick up answers and, and video feeds from your, some of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's great. We can go to the next one, Natalie. All right. Next, we have Sean in Atlanta with a question about the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. This question is about Cop City. Not the litigation portion, but the mayor's actual position on it. Initially, he supported it while also supporting letting the process play out and let the public be heard. Then there was a city clerk drama, followed by his appearance on Closer Look, and twisted himself into a pretzel, followed by a more friendly audience on Political Breakfast, where the topic was treated in a jovial manner. I'm paraphrasing, but he said he didn't understand why they were insisting on a referendum because construction had already begun, implying it was a done deal. Do we know where he actually stands? He implied it was a done deal. Sean, first of all, let me point out it was no one on this panel who used the expression you did for the Atlanta Police Training Center. We don't refer to it as Cop City unless we're saying uh, that that's what the opponents uh, uh, call it, just to make a point there. Um, you know, the mayor absolutely supports the Atlanta Police Training Center, but I do think your question raises something that we've talked about on this show with some regularity, and that's whether it's the mayor, uh, the Atlanta Police Foundation, uh, other supporters of the training center, they've done a terrible job giving straightforward, uh, clear messages as to why it is so important. So to that extent, I understand why you might be a little confused about Andre Dickens' stand on the police training center. Yeah, but the mayor is 100% behind yeah. it. He has staked his first-term agenda on it. It was not, you know, when we were covering his run for office, it was probably not one of the top three or four issues, let alone the top ten issues maybe. Um, but it has become quickly the issue that he will define his first term over. He doesn't want to necessarily. He'd rather be talking about youth sport, youth programs and, and public services and, and other issues. But sometimes when you run for office, your, your policies and your approach quickly changes. And this has become such a giant debate that is not just in Atlanta, but is, but is really spread to other parts of the country as well over police reforms and 
and, 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 and social justice that it is he is 100% behind it. And frankly, we had the Governor Kemp, Governor Brian Kemp, just the other day say, single out Mayor Dickens and say he's supportive of this. Uh, but where are other Democrats stand on this issue? And Patricia, we've got great partners at Closer Look and Political Breakfast, our our sister programs, we should say, on WABE. But I will I wanted to just bring in bring you in because at the end of the day, it is under construction and the referendum being slowed down means that even if they get to counting um, the signatures and get it on the ballot, the longer this takes the more there will actually be a building that people won't be able to reverse. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the process continues even as the opposition um, continues to build. And I think a real challenge for the mayor and the supporters of this is that it's become wrapped up in so many um, additional uh, issues, not just the question of whether there should be a police training center. There are now, there and have been environmentalists involved. Once the petition process got started, then it was a voting rights issue and an access to the ballot issue. So it has become just this sort of mini-headed um, monster in terms of communication. And I think that it's been easy for uh, people in Atlanta to lose track of not the fact that um, Andre Dickens supports the center. He certainly does, but then he's also had to really be a lot more nuanced on in his other messaging about what it would do to the environment or why there should or should not be a ballot initiative on it. All right. Well, Natalie, you did great. Thank you. <laughs> and we do want you to know we want your calls. So a reminder, you can reach out to us on our listener hotline at any time. It's open 24-7 Call us, leave us your questions at 404-526-2527. All right, we've got a few more minutes and we're going to move right into who's up and who's down. <clears throat> so, you know, we're going to end on the high note with who's up, but we're going to start with who's down. Bill, lead us off. Um, who's down this week are those people who believe in choice for pregnant women. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, announced yesterday they will hear a case on whether the FDA was correct in saying that mifepristone could be made widely available to women uh, who could use it uh, at home uh, to deal with abortion through uh, medication. Uh, so if you are pro-choice, if you've watched the way the Supreme Court dealt with the Dobbs case, you have to wonder exactly how they might deal with mifepristone. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating and an, another really uh, groundbreaking case about choice in this country. First major Supreme Court case since Roe v. Wade was struck down about a year ago. Um, guys, I went the easy way out for my who's down. It's our kids for getting another bad lesson in how to say I'm sorry from Kenneth Chesborough and Sidney Powell, both as both of whom wrote those terse one sentence handwritten letters as part of their plea deals, felt like a forced apology. They basically said to me, sorry, not sorry, to the people of Georgia. Or like sorry if your feelings were hurt. Type yes. Of apology. I'm sorry you got upset with <laughs> yes. what I said. Um Patricia, your who da- who's down? My who's down is Rudy Giuliani. Uh he ha- he is in court over a defamation case and by his own actions and just being such a blabbermouth outside of court, <laughs> um, he has made the judge angry, he's made his own lawyers angry. It has been agreed in court that he did defame the two Georgia election workers, and then he continued to defame them on the steps of the courthouse. So Rudy Giuliani, it looks like he's going to be facing some serious um, penalties in terms of money. He may not have the money or he may have the money, but they're going to I think he's going to they're going to come down with a pretty large judgment against him. So I was going to say my who's down is House Speaker Mike Johnson, because, again, Kevin McCarthy is not coming back in 2024. George Santos is out. There's another lawmaker not coming back. So his majority is even thinner. It's going to be even harder for him to get anything done. But With the yo-yos. With the yo-yos. <laughs> but my real who's down is Howard University, and they'll see why tomorrow. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> despite, despite what Chris Bruce said, you know, rooting for Howard, you're, you're here <laughs> saying otherwise. Right, yeah. Um, and hopefully that's not going to jinx us. Okay, who's up? Greg, who's up? 
My who's up is ambitious West Georgia Republicans. If you are an up-and-coming Republican in the 3rd District, well, I've got news for you. You've got a congressional seat with Drew Ferguson announcing his retirement. There's going to be a huge field running for that deeply conservative seat. It's a ruby-red district that Ferguson won with about 70%. At least now it is. At least now. It could be changed. Um, We'll see how the special master, uh, we'll we'll see what the federal judge does and what the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal does. But at least now, it's 70% Republican seat. And if you win this primary as it is now, you're you're in office for a long time. Patricia? I have a very similar who's up. My who's up is the third district because um, even though Congress appears to be the most toxic workplace in America, they've got about 30 to 50 people in that (laughs) district who want to be the next member of Congress. And I'm going to go right now because my who's up is Drew Ferguson, (laughs) the outgoing (laughs) congressman in the third district, because he's getting away from the quote unquote yo-yos. And he's going to spend time in West Georgia with his wife and his children and his grandchildren. And he made it clear that he's ready to have a little less stress um, on his plate going. um, Well, and not immediately. Right now, we think he's going to stay through the end of his term. But he's uh, looking at the exits, which will probably give him a little pep in his step. Bill, you can finish us off. Yeah. Finish us off. my My who's up is a tribute to someone who just passed away yesterday, Terry Maples. If you have young children who you take to Zoo Atlanta and you love it there with all of the, uh, the, the spaces, the natural environments for the animals and the like, it is Terry Maples who made that happen. Back in the 80s, the Atlanta Zoo was one of the worst zoos in the country and named as such. The animals were kept in cages with cement floors. Terry Maples came in, turned it around, made it one of the most um, modern and most admired zoos in the country. And he did it around Willie B, a gorilla who Atlanta came to love. It wasn't until Willie B was three years old that he got off of the cement floor and got to the natural habitat where he could roll in the grass. Mm. Terry Maples was a remarkable leader. And I'm so sorry we've lost him. Well, thank you. That was a great tribute in history lesson. So thank you, Bill. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for spending time with us today on Politically Georgia. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving arts scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.